Chapter One, Part One of The Lifted Veil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Weber. The Lifted Veil by George Eliot. Chapter One, Part One. Give me no light, great heaven, but such as turns to energy of human fellowship. No powers beyond the growing heritage that makes completer manhood. The time of my end approaches. I have lately been subject to attacks of angina pectoris, and in the ordinary course of things, my physician tells me, I may fairly hope that my life will not be protracted many months. Unless, then, I am cursed with an exceptional physical constitution, as I am cursed with an exceptional mental character, I shall not much longer groan under the wearisome burthen of this earthly existence. If it were to be otherwise, if I were to live on to the age most men desire and provide for, I should for once have known whether the miseries of delusive expectation can outweigh the miseries of true provision. For I foresee when I shall die, and everything that will happen in my last moments. Just a month from this day, on September 20, 1850, I shall be sitting in this chair, in this study, at ten o'clock at night, longing to die, weary of incessant insight and foresight, without delusions and without hope. Just as I am watching a tongue of blue flame rising in the fire, and my lamp is burning low, the horrible contraction will begin at my chest. I shall only have time to reach the bell and pull it violently before the sense of suffocation will come. No one will answer my bell. I know why. My two servants are lovers and will have quarreled. My housekeeper will have rushed out of the house in a fury two hours before, hoping that Perry will believe she has gone to drown herself. Perry is alarmed at last and is gone out after her. The little scullery maid is asleep on a bench. She never answers the bell. It does not wake her. The sense of suffocation increases. My lamp goes out with a horrible stench. I make a great effort and snatch at the bell again. I long for life, and there is no help. I thirsted for the unknown. The thirst is gone. Oh, God, let me stay with the known and be weary of it. I am content. Agony of pain and suffocation, and all the while the earth, the fields, the pebbly brook at the bottom of the rookery, the fresh scent after the rain, the light of the morning through my chamber window, the warmth of the hearth after the frosty air. Will darkness close over them forever? Darkness, darkness, no pain, nothing but darkness. But I am passing on and on through the darkness. My thought stays in the darkness, but always with a sense of moving onward. Before that time comes, I wish to use my last hours of ease and strength in telling the strange story of my experience. I have never fully unbosomed myself to any human being, 
I have never been encouraged to trust much in the sympathy of my fellow men. But we have all a chance of meeting with some pity, some tenderness, some charity, when we are dead. It is the living only who cannot be forgiven, the living only from whom men's indulgence and reverence are held off, like the rain by the hard east wind. While the heart beats, bruise it. It is your only opportunity. While the eye can still turn towards you with moist, timid entreaty, freeze it with an icy, unanswering gaze. While the ear, that delicate messenger to the inmost sanctuary of the soul, can still take in the tones of kindness, put it off with hard civility, or sneering compliment, or envious affectation of indifference. While the creative brain can still throb with the sense of injustice, with the yearning for brotherly recognition, make haste, oppress it with your ill-considered judgments, your trivial comparisons, your careless misrepresentations. The heart will by and by be still. Ubi saeva indignatio, ulterius cor lacerare nequit. The eye will cease to entreat, the ear will be deaf. The brain will have ceased from all wants, as well as from all work. Then your charitable speeches may find vent. Then you may remember and pity the toil and the struggle and the failure. Then you may give due honor to the work achieved. Then you may find extenuation for errors, and may consent to bury them. That is a trivial schoolboy text. Why do I dwell on it? It has little reference to me, for I shall leave no works behind me for men to honor. I have no near relatives who will make up by weeping over my grave for the wounds they inflicted on me when I was among them. It is only the story of my life that will perhaps win a little more sympathy from strangers when I am dead than I ever believed it would obtain from my friends while I was living. My childhood perhaps seems happier to me than it really was, by contrast with all the after years. For then the curtain of the future was as impenetrable to me as to other children. I had all their delight in the present hour, their sweet indefinite hopes for the morrow, and I had a tender mother, even now, after the dreary lapse of long years, a slight trace of sensation accompanies the remembrance of her caress as she held me on her knee, her arms round my little body, her cheek pressed on mine. I had a complaint of the eyes that made me blind for a little while, and she kept me on her knee from morning till night. That unequaled love soon vanished out of my life, and even to my childish consciousness it was as if that life had become more chill. I rode my little white pony with the groom by my side as before, but there were no loving eyes looking at me as I mounted, no glad arms opened to me when I came back. Perhaps I missed my mother's love more than most children of seven or eight would have done, to whom the other pleasures of life remained as before, for I was certainly a very sensitive child. I remember still the mingled trepidation and delicious excitement with which I was affected by the tramping of the horses on the pavement in the echoing stables, 
by the loud resonance of the groom's voices, by the booming bark of the dogs as my father's carriage thundered under the archway of the courtyard, by the din of the gong as it gave notice of luncheon and dinner, the measured tramp of soldiery which I sometimes heard, for my father's house lay near a county town where there was a large barracks, made me sob and tremble, and yet when they were gone past I longed for them to come back again. I fancy my father thought me an odd child, and had little fondness for me. Though he was very careful in fulfilling what he regarded as a parent's duties, but he was already past the middle of life, and I was not his only son. My mother had been his second wife, and he was five and forty when he married her. He was a firm, unbending, intensely orderly man, in root and stem a banker, but with a flourishing graft of the active landholder, aspiring to county influence. One of those people who are always like themselves from day to day, who are uninfluenced by the weather, and neither know melancholy nor high spirits. I held him in great awe, and appeared more timid and sensitive in his presence than at other times, a circumstance which, perhaps, helped to confirm him in the intention to educate me on a different plan from the prescriptive one with which he had complied in the case of my elder brother, already a tall youth at Eton. My brother was to be his representative and successor. He must go to Eton and Oxford, for the sake of making connections, of course. My father was not a man to underrate the bearing of Latin satirists or Greek dramatists on the attainment of an aristocratic position, but intrinsically he had slight esteem for those dead but sceptred spirits. Having qualified himself for forming an independent opinion by reading Potter's Aeschylus, and dipping into Francis's Horace. To this negative view he added a positive one, derived from a recent connection with mining speculations. Namely, that a scientific education was the really useful training for a younger son. Moreover, it was clear that a shy, sensitive boy like me was not fit to encounter the rough experience of a public school. Mr. Leatherall had said so very decidedly. Mr. Leatherall was a large man in spectacles, who one day took my small head between his large hands and pressed it here and there in an exploratory, auspicious manner, then placed each of his great thumbs on my temples and pushed me a little away from him and stared at me with glittering spectacles. The contemplation appeared to displease him for he frowned sternly, and said to my father, drawing his thumbs across my eyebrows, The deficiency is there, sir, there, and here, he added, touching the upper sides of my head, here is the excess. That must be brought out, sir, and this must be laid to sleep. I was in a state of tremor, partly at the vague idea that I was the object of reprobation, partly in the agitation of my first hatred, hatred of this big, spectacled man who pulled my head about as if he wanted to buy and cheapen it. 
I am not aware how much Mr. Leatherall had to do with the system afterwards adopted towards me, but it was presently clear that private tutors, natural history, science, and the modern languages were the appliances by which the defects of my organization were to be remedied. I was very stupid about machines, so I was to be greatly occupied with them. I had no memory for classification, so it was particularly necessary that I should study systematic zoology and botany. I was hungry for human deeds and humane motions, so I was to be plentifully crammed with the mechanical powers, the elementary bodies, and the phenomena of electricity and magnetism. A better constituted boy would certainly have profited under my intelligent tutors with their scientific apparatus, and would doubtless have found the phenomena of electricity and magnetism as fascinating as I was every Thursday assured they were. As it was, I could have paired off, for ignorance of whatever was taught me, with the worst Latin scholar that was ever turned out of a classical academy. I read Plutarch and Shakespeare and Don Quixote by the sly, and supplied myself in that way with wandering thoughts, while my tutor was assuring me that, quote, an improved man, as distinguished from an ignorant one, was a man who knew the reason why water ran downhill. End quote. I had no desire to be this improved man. I was glad of running water. I could watch it and listen to it gurgling among the pebbles and bathing the bright green water plants by the hour together. I did not want to know why it ran. I had perfect confidence that there were good reasons for what was so very beautiful. There is no need to dwell on this part of my life. I have said enough to indicate that my nature was of the sensitive, unpractical order, and that it grew up in an uncongenial medium, which could never foster it into happy, healthy development. When I was sixteen I was sent to Geneva to complete my course of education, and the change was a very happy one to me. For the first sight of the Alps, with the setting sun on them, as we descended the Jura, seemed to me like an entrance into heaven, and the three years of my life there were spent in a perpetual sense of exaltation, as if from a draught of delicious wine, at the presence of nature in all her awful loveliness. You will think, perhaps, that I must have been a poet from this early sensibility to nature, but my lot was not so happy as that. A poet pours forth his song and believes in the listening ear and answering soul to which his song will be floated sooner or later. But the poet's sensibility without his voice, the poet's sensibility that finds no vent but in silent tears on the sunny bank when the noonday light sparkles on the water, or in an inward shudder at the sound of harsh human tones, the sight of a cold human eye, this dumb passion brings with it a fatal solitude of soul in the society of one's fellow men. My least solitary moments were those in which I pushed off in my boat at evening towards the center of the lake. It seemed to me that the sky and the glowing mountain tops 
and the wide blue water surrounded me with a cherishing love such as no human face had shed on me since my mother's love had vanished out of my life. I used to do as Jean-Jacques did, lie down in my boat and let it glide where it would, while I looked up at the departing glow leaving one mountaintop after the other, as if the prophet's chariot of fire were passing over them on its way to the home of light. Then, when the white summits were all sad and corpse-like, I had to push homeward, for I was under careful surveillance and was allowed no late wanderings. This disposition of mine was not favorable to the formation of intimate friendships among the numerous youths of my own age, who are always to be found studying at Geneva. Yet I made one such friendship, and, singularly enough, it was with a youth whose intellectual tendencies were the very reverse of my own. I shall call him Charles Meunier, his real surname, an English one, for he was of English extraction, having since become celebrated. He was an orphan who lived on a miserable pittance while he pursued the medical studies for which he had a special genius. Strange that with my vague mind, susceptible and unobservant, hating inquiry and given up to contemplation, I should have been drawn towards a youth whose strongest passion was science. But the bond was not an intellectual one. It came from a source that can happily blend the stupid with the brilliant, the dreamy with the practical. It came from community of feeling. Charles was poor and ugly, derided by Genevese Gamin, and not acceptable in drawing-rooms. I saw that he was isolated, as I was, though from a different cause, and, stimulated by a sympathetic resentment, I made timid advances towards him. It is enough to say that there sprang up as much comradeship between us as our different habits would allow, and in Charles's rare holidays we went up to Salève together, or took the boat to Vevey while I listened dreamily to the monologues in which he unfolded his bold conceptions of future experiment and discovery. I mingled them confusedly in my thought with glimpses of blue water and delicate floating cloud, with the notes of birds and the distant glitter of the glacier. He knew quite well that my mind was half-absent, yet he liked to talk to me in this way, for don't we talk of our hopes and our projects even to dogs and birds when they love us? I have mentioned this one friendship because of its connection with a strange and terrible scene which I shall have to narrate in my subsequent life. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by Kirsten Weber.